everyone. Um, I'm going to be starting tonight with the uh, page um, 23. Thank you. 23 from last week. Just to finish up this part of history, we'll talk a little bit about the medieval church. And then um, I'm going to talk to you after that, before the break, about the midterm that I already posted. And then if you have any questions. Because then I'm going to go into the um, notes that I sent you for session five, uh, where we're going to uh, start talking about um, the liturgical movement. Um, and I really hope that we can uh, finish it up so that next time we can um, embark on the wonderful Second Vatican Council documents. Uh, but you're going to, particularly tonight, when we get to the second part after uh, the medieval period, um, when we talk about the liturgical movement, you're, it's going to all make sense, I hope and I pray. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, the, that's the plan. So the prayer, I have the prayer, the prayer is on session five's notes. Okay, after I put this up, I realized it, but that's all right. Uh, perfectly fine. So why don't we start there? And as I was talking to somebody in the hall uh, this evening, and we were chatting about various things, I said, that's why I always say, forget about what you left behind. And to be present to this moment and this time that we have together. To be with each other, to learn, to study, to reflect. All right? So as we do that, we just take a moment on, we have no special feast day today, but we've had a lot of them yesterday and the day before um, as well, and a lot more coming up. But for the prayer, I was going through um, the office for today and all the different ones and different prayers. And mid-afternoon, I know it's not mid-afternoon, but the reading from mid-afternoon prayer struck me and it connected to uh, what I have planned in the second part of the class. So we start tonight with this reading from St. Paul to the Colossians. Over all other virtues put on love, which binds the rest together and makes them perfect. Christ's peace must reign in your hearts since as members of the one body, you have been called to that peace. Dedicate yourselves to thankfulness. The word of the Lord. All right. All right, so as I said, um, I'll address some questions. Um, I did get one question via email. Um, that was more about uh, rubrics of the current mass, which I answered to the person who asked on email. But it was a great question because it showed me that the observation of what is what we're experiencing when we go to mass, and versus, well, what's actually in the general uh, of the um, Roman Missal. So um, that was wonderful, and we will be talking more about that as we move on uh, and talk about uh, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, all right? So if any of you have burning questions, 
If you don't mind, I'll address it after we finish wrapping up this. And then as I said, um, questions about the midterm that I did post as promised uh, yesterday. So I keep my promises. I keep my promises always. Um, okay, so let me put this away for a moment. And we will look at the medieval church. So if you remember, uh, we've been taking a very broad look at the history of the church, uh, mostly referring to your uh, required reading of the Metzger book, um, although I've added other of the uh, recommended readings or other things that um, I'm aware of to it. But um, we ended last week, and I think we were in the fifth century somewhere, um, but um, we were talking about how the catechumenate declined, um, basically, um, and other practices, liturgical practices, started to develop. And uh, for example, like Eucharistic liturgy, uh, daily assemblies, and penitential rites start to develop. Um, I, I think I ended up by saying, according to the notes that I made, that um, preaching, there was a shift in how preaching was approached because of the decline in the catechumenate. All right, so in other words, they were preaching to a different audience, all right, because there were very few, if any, adults um, becoming part of the Christian community. So there's a shift there. So the focus changes to more on commentary, uh, in regard to the liturgical year that's developing uh, versus um, instructing catechumens. Because we'll talk more about this when we talk about the rite of Christian initiation of adults. But if you remember from the earlier history that the liturgy was the place for catechesis. And um, a good part of the assembly that gathered were catechumens, all right? So by the 8th century, basically the essentials of rituals begin to be established. If we remember, uh, things weren't written down in the beginning. It was more an oral tradition. Different communities were doing different things. But now um, I think that the, um, the concern that we need to remember is the church is growing. And, there are and, and so there has to be organization. And that's why we see this. So the, where liturgy is concerned, things need to be written down and um, established for every community. So we see the beginnings of that, all right? So when we talk about the medieval church or the Middle Ages, where it's a span from the 8th to the 15th century, basically, all right? And I'm not going to give you the details. You get the details from your text. I'm going to give you some highlights. Because remember, I'm trying to uh, approach this in broad strokes to give you a sense of what was important when. OK? I just want to say. OK. Uh, so by the end of the seventh century, all right, um, many churches of the West begin to imitate the liturgy of Rome. Here's where Rome becomes important. And it has to do with a lot of details of the Roman Empire 
and the east and the west in the split. Now, this isn't the big split that we have between east and west. It's like a minor split, if you will. But um, the churches start to look at the liturgies in Rome because they were very rich in beauty, and they had formularies. They had a form to it. All right, so this is where we really start to see the Roman church or the Latin church, the liturgies start to evolve, all right? And here, a key figure in history, and history was never my strong point in school, ever. I'm talking like, you know, world history and all that. But Charlemagne is a key figure, um, as I'm sure that you've already read. And he really played a big part in uh, keeping the church and the empire connected, okay? Um, and he wanted to bring unity to the celebration of the liturgy, all right? Because again, as I said before, there's so many churches springing up and it becomes important for the organization to, to have this. Um, but remember, we just, we're, we could talk about so many different things, but we want to continue to focus on the liturgy. Um, here we see um, books are compiled. And here's where we have the first sacramentaries. If you remember in our time, before the third edition of the Roman Missal, we had a sacramentary, all right, which is basically the same thing. Uh, but the name changes. Electionaries, taking the excerpts from the Bible and um, associating them with the different days of the year. All right, so this is where we see the beginnings of that. Um, written texts determine the celebration and rubrics become important, all right? Um, prior to this time, it, it wasn't that important. Everybody was doing pretty much their own thing. But in order to uh, keep order and unity, rubrics here become um, important. All right? Um, here, this is from uh, the Marty Mar book um, that's on your recommended reading. But he has some uh, good insight. He says, the unification achieved still left room for great diversity. So, and I've mentioned this before, when changes occur, even in our time, they don't happen overnight. It's not like flipping a switch and all of a sudden, you know, change happens. It, it happens slowly. So he's, he's clarifying that. And he says that, you know, there was still room for diversity. And that's an important thing. And as we'll see when we look at Vatican II, cultural adaptation and things like that. There is diversity within the unity. He goes on to say all the churches added the feasts of their own or regional saints of the Roman calendar. I mean, again, we do that in our time, depending on our parish, right? Um, they formed variants to the Roman canon. So they basically had the Roman canon, but they were able to make adaptations. In various places in the mass prayers of the celebrant were added, with each church organizing them into an, a missal of its own. Okay? So I think that that's, um, that's a, I couldn't have said it better than uh, Professor Martin Mark um, in his book. 
If any of you, I know that uh, Rob's looked at it. Um, it's a very good book, but he, he really just gives snippets of history where uh, Metzger goes into more detail. But again, I always think it's good to have one basic and then go to another book and it just affirms or clarifies. Um, that's how I use resources. Uh, so I went, I try to stick with books that are on your bibliography uh, that you make note of it and if you want to, uh, there it's suggested. Um, also here, um, at this time again, Charlemagne, and he has liturgical advisors. They were striving to make liturgical practice uniform by imposing these books that are now being created on the different um, communities, all right? And the books, all right, this, this, is, um, this is, to me, this is significant. The books become the reference and the norm for celebration, the books. That wasn't the case in the earlier centuries, right? Okay, all right. As I said, we're going. So here you see it up. On, uh, you see it on your notes. Um, it's the end of the oral tradition in regard to the liturgy. All right. We have we have books now for this. Okay. Um, from the 14th century on, rituals appeared and they were practical, there were practical manuals for liturgical text for the priests to use. The books that would actually show and the celebrant exactly what he had to do. But we have that today. But this, this is the origin of it, this period of time. All right? And um, so the rituals now of the Roman Catholic Church did not evolve so much, but they become stabilized, all right? That, that's pretty key, or more organized. And Marty Mart refers this to the age of rubricists, all right? Now, this is just a little interesting footnote, all right, that I would add. After the Second Vatican Council, all right, when, uh, liturgical theology became popular for students to be studying. We were studying um, things like the meaning of the liturgy, the theology of the liturgy, etc. And I can always remember being in class with older students who studied liturgy in schools um, before the Second Vatican Council. And I remember distinctly one person asking, it was very different. All right, they asked the professor, why was it different? And the response from the professor was, because prior to the Second Vatican Council, when we didn't have a lot of these resources to be teaching, the liturgy student was basically studying rubrics. You see the difference? It's important to know the rubrics and how things should be, but now we can just we can really get to the heart and the meaning and the essence, if you will, of the liturgy. Or as uh, Romano Guardini and then uh, Benedict XVI referred to as the spirit of the liturgy. 
you see? So this is, again, the origin of where this all comes from. And again, I'm painting in very broad strokes here to give you a sense of, of this development. And then we move on to the Council of Trent, okay? Now this is a very interesting uh, period of time. And you see the dates, 1563, and it's brought to its conclusion in 1614. That is many, many years, right? You do the math. Now there's a book, it's not on your, and I had it with me, I think I left it in my car today, but anyway, it doesn't matter. It's by um, O'Malley, and it's called The Story of the Council of Trent. And if you're ever interested, it's, it reads like a novel, and it really holds your attention. And I read it a few years ago, and it was like, wow, I learned so much about him telling the story. But basically, what kept happening, for various reasons, they would convene for the council, and it would stop. Then they, a few years later, they convened again, and it would stop. They convened again. So basically, his message of telling this story, that it's amazing that it was even brought to a conclusion. You know? So, so that, uh, to me, is a very interesting little piece of uh, trivia about the Council of Trent. Um, but anyway, it is a significant time in our uh, the history of the church. Um, regarding liturgy, uh, the council wanted to correct the abuses that the reformers, like Martin Luther, were complaining about. And if you know some of you have already taken church history, I'm sure you're aware that the Council of Trent is a reaction to the Protestant Reformation. So it was, they, it was more a defensive uh, type of a council. So it, where we're concerned, um, looking at the liturgy, Trent uh, was trying to address, well, what are the criticisms? What are the viable abuses to the liturgy? And let's try to um, fix that. So we have Pius V is a key figure here. And here we have the Roman Missal of 1570. And I have a note there. You find all this in Metzger on those pages. Um, there's a very interesting book, and I do think that it is on your uh, suggested reading called Beyond Pius V, because we've had the conversation before, um, the um, extraordinary form versus you know, the um, ordinary form. But extraordinary form comes from this Pius V um, missile. Um, but anyway, there's, I found a picture of him. I thought it's always good to see what people might have looked like at that time, right? Um, but anyway, um, there were many secondary evolutions of the time, all right? They may not even seem significant, but if we were to look, if you've been to extraordinary forms celebrated in some parishes, which I have, you see some of these things that they tried to correct or look at. For example, multiplication of prayers by the priest, uh, multiplication of sign of the cross. In other words, what I mean by that is if uh, the rubric called for making the sign of the cross, all right, during this time, we see there were multiple signs of the cross. In other words, 
Um, you know how we always say less is more? That wasn't the case. More was better. So if one sign of the cross is good, well, three is better. Okay? And this, I'm just, this observation, all right? Now, this is an interesting thing. Movements to and fro. I, just to give you an example of what that means, and some of you might have experienced it, a couple of years ago, I went to a mass that was celebrated in my parish in the extraordinary form, um, and it was for some particular feast, I can't even remember, and my husband came with me, all right, reluctantly, but he came, <laughs> okay? Um, but the, the priest and deacons that were serving, um, as they say the prayers quietly, there was this motion of this. That's what this means, to and fro. And I've seen it, because I've been to extraordinary form a couple of times. My husband, who is many years older than me, said, I've never seen that before. I mean, what are they doing? I've never seen that before. But here it is, motions to and fro. You would never see that now. And in some experiences of the extraordinary form, you don't see it. But I've seen it. I've witnessed it. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But that's what that means. You know, and basically in silence, you know, they're saying these prayers and they're moving in different directions. And I, I will admit to you, I, I don't know what it all meant, but it was, it was happening. Could it be compared at all to like in the in very strict Hebrews where they like Davra, you know, that were they bound to, could it have gone back to that? You know, I have to be honest and say I don't know because it was different than just a profound bow. It's it was more it's more of a gesture of moving from side to side. And I basically what I should do the next time I see the pastor of my yes. parish is ask him. <laughs> it's really ask him. Uh, so that I can come in with a somewhat intelligent answer for you all, right? So um, some of you might want to delve into it. I know you have a lot of other things to do, but um, Anyway, I just wanted to point out some of these things. But the most important thing that we see at this period of history is this eclipse of the liturgical assembly. All right? And if you remember, back, seems like ages ago, it's only five weeks ago, when we were talking about the early church, what was so important? The assembly, right? The community was the most important thing. And here's where we're going to see it's not so important, all right? There's a shift in the way the church was perceived. Remember, the church was the people, and now we move to the perception is the church is pope, bishop, clergy. That's the shift, where the assembly gathered becomes less and less important and almost becomes silent, spectator. There's a beautiful book, and I, I, I started to read it, and I, it's in the library, but I have it out, because it wasn't on your um, list, but I discovered it through a footnote, but it's called From Silence to Participation, and it kind of takes us through you know, uh, that. And you're going to see when we look at the liturgical movement and its theological underpinnings that coming back to the importance of the assembly 
is a major, major theme of the liturgical movement. And we'll get to that after the break, I hope. I, pro <laughs> I can't promise, but that's my plan. So the important thing for you to, to get out of this is the shift in the perception, all right? Um, we also see such a thing as private mass, the priest alone celebrating mass with no assembly. All right, this is where we start to see that happening. Um, we also, it's not on your notes, but you would also, and if some churches have many altars, right, you would see priests at all the different altars. There was no such thing as concelebration like we have now. So because of um, intentions, mass intentions and things like that, you, would, you might see various priests at different altars at the same time saying what is called private mass. Now, when we fast forward, hopefully next week, when we talk about the principles of the Second Vatican Council, there's nothing private about liturgy at all. And I think in the first week we talked about ritual prayer of the community. In other words, liturgy, the sacraments are not private. So when people come to you in a parish and they say, well, I want a private baptism. We know what that means. You know, they don't want to be with all the other babies being baptized. But there's no such thing as a private baptism. It's just the wrong language. Language is important. It gives meaning to what we do. But there's no such thing as a private baptism or private anything. Because all liturgy, whatever sacrament it is, whatever celebration, is public. It's the public prayer of the community, all right? So basically, there's limited change from the 12th century to the Second Vatican Council. So basically, that's the good news of our, our, our um, stroll through uh, litur liturgical history, um, that there, there's very little change that, that happens um, uh, during this, um, from this time moving forward. Very little change. And uh, you've heard me say it before, that's why we needed a reform. That's why we needed a reform. All right? So um, I, I'm making better progress. I'm going to switch to, give me a moment. I'm going to close this down and open up the next one. See how good at this I can be? I hope you noticed that I got a PowerPoint up here tonight. I, I apologize for our online students that um, you know we did get PowerPoint working in here, but you all have your um, notes. You do have all the slides, right? Um, so this is um, the plan, all right? Um, I completed the notes from session four, I'm happy to say, okay? Amen, right? Um, I'm going to be referencing Pius XII, his um, encyclical Mediator Dei, um, which is, I couldn't find it. I wanted to uh, post it on your files, <coughs> but I have, I printed out the PDF and last night it was late and I couldn't find it, but I, you can, you can Google it and find it certainly, but I wanted to have it there for you. Um, it's extensive. And if you want to read it, good. I'm going to be referring to it here and there. But it's 
I want you to know it exists, and you'll find out why in a few minutes, all right? The important thing, and we're getting to stuff that I love here, the theological foundations of the liturgical movement, all right? Um, European roots of the liturgical movement, and what all that means, and then finally, the liturgical movement of the early 20th century in the United States. I hope to get through all that uh, with you tonight because this is really foundational stuff to getting to the Second Vatican Council. Does that make sense? So far so good? All right. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to keep on going, but I gotta get my right notes so I don't get, go off track here. That's what happens. Okay. This here. Good. So, oh, I got to change your view here. Give me a minute. Sorry. There we go. Much better. Okay. All right, so I want to, I'm jumping ahead to 1947, but there's a reason, because we're gonna go back, we're gonna go backwards. And because I wanna introduce you to Mediator Dei, um, which is Pius XII's encyclical on the liturgy. This is the first encyclical on the liturgy that we, we ever had. Um, and that in itself is significant, all right? Um, it's referred to as the Magna Carta of the liturgical movement, all right? Now, the liturgical movement doesn't be begins in 1909, all right? But, and this is written so many years after, but it becomes really important. Um, this beautiful quote from Paul VI, at the start of the, right after the Second Vatican Council, it's in his um, uh, introduction to the New Roman Missal that we have after the Second Vatican Council, and this is very significant. No one should think that the revision of the Roman Missal has come out of nowhere. People do think that, though, right? Because they don't didn't read this. The progress in liturgical studies <clears throat> in the last four centuries has certainly prepared the way. So that's written like in 1969. So basically, in this one slide, we went from 1947 to 69, and then now we're going to go backwards. All right? I, I don't mean to confuse you here, but you're going to see that this is going to make sense. All right? I think that the, just by way of introducing this, let me say this. It's a mistake to think that the contemporary changes in the liturgy only began with the Second Vatican Council. And so many people think that, that it just was like flipping a switch. And that's not true. And that's why we have to take the time to look back, and now particularly looking at the liturgical movement. We need to understand these changes within the historical context of the liturgical movement, all right? Because this movement laid the groundwork for the reform of the liturgy that took place at the Second Vatican Council because we needed a reform and we can never forget that. 
Numerous attempts, according to my own research, at reform were made following the Council of Trent, but they were all, um, nothing was accepted, nothing, all right? But there were many attempts. So it really, the, the, this um, movement, if you will, um, began, in 19, as I said, in 1909, and then takes us to the Second Vatican Council. And the place where it begins is in monasteries. Interesting, right? In monasteries. And in Mediator Dei, actually, um, in 1947, Pius XII affirms, affirms the work that was done in the monasteries earlier on, in the early 1900s. Um, I thought I had a quote, but I don't. Let's see. Maybe it's going to come up in a little while. All right? But um, he, I think it comes up later that I show you where he affirms. But he actually affirms the work of particularly the Benedictines, the Benedictine monks, all right? Um, but that's why I actually brought up this 1947 document when we're going to go back to talk about these theological foundations of the liturgical movement, all right? You with me? A little bit, right? <laughs> You're okay, all of our online people? All right, thumbs up. That's what I like to see. Great. So what's important here, and again, it's broad strokes. There could be a whole course on the liturgical movement in the United States. And here I'm going to take you through some European roots and all of that. The best book on this, in my opinion, it's on your suggested reading, is called The Unread Vision by Keith Pecklers. This is a favorite of mine. Um, I have devoured it over and over again. This is what's called deep reading. Deep reading, marked, tabbed. Um, so th this is the best book on this topic. And I'm gonna try to give you um, just a little bit about everything, basically, that he goes through in there. But we, know, we need to look at these foundations. So first of all, European roots. In the 19th century, in general, this is a time of intellectual activity in Europe, in every field of study, all right? So for theological study, there is a return. Um, it, there's an aim here to return to the Pauline concept of the church as the mystical body of Christ. Why do you think that scholars who are studying liturgy back in the 19th century are looking to have this return to the Pauline concept? What, what happened during the medieval church all those centuries? What happened? Rubrics. Rubrics, and what became less important? The assembly. The assembly. And who is the assembly? The church, the body. So people who are studying and really thinking about this on a high intellectual level are saying we need to return to this, this ancient concept of that the church is the mystical body of Christ. Because that was prevalent in the early church. We saw that. 
and then it, it got lost. All right. So here, you're, we're seeing stirrings. Those of you who already had ecclesiology and church history, we know that we read about this in Lumen Gentium, the Second Vatican Council, right? So now you know where it comes from. Well, first of all, it comes from the ancient church, but we owe it to these men, uh, primarily men, monks, who really wanted to study this and say, hey, this is important. Um, and so in the early 20th century, monasteries in France and Germany become liturgical centers um, of uh, liturgical study, scholarship, and they did amazing things. So here is the quote that I was thinking about before, where uh, Pius XII in Mediator Dei points out the work of the monks. He says, you are of course familiar with the fact, venerable brethren, that a remarkably widespread revival of scholarly interest in the sacred liturgy took place toward the end of the last century and has continued through the years of this one. Remember, he's writing in 1947 and he's acknowledging the work of the monks. The movement owed its rise to commendable private initiative and more particularly to the zealous and persistent labor, labor of several monasteries within the distinguished order of Saint Benedict. All right, that, that to me is great, that in 1947 the Pope acknowledges work of an earlier time. And remember, it's the first liturgical encyclical that we have. All right, so, and so he really is acknowledging this movement. So it really gives you a sense of how slow things happen in the church. And, and I am totally respectful of God, how God works and God's time and happens for a reason. You know? But I think we can begin to see these shifts that take place um, in this span of time. And it's really... We can honestly say the Spirit has, is at work in all this. You know, the Holy Spirit worked uh, throughout history. We can never deny that because we see it as we look at these developments and these evolutions and how things happened, you know, uh, and the way they happened. So it's, it's really wonderful. It's really wonderful. So. Here we have the French liturgical movement. And uh, I'm gonna introduce you to key figures. There's many of them, but I'm gonna introduce you to some, uh, not all. Again, if you take a look, if you're interested in the unread ver uh, vision, he, he goes into a lot more people than I will take you to me. But uh, Garanger um, is a key figure here in France. Uh, all of the monasteries really trace their work to him. Um, he restored the abbey at uh, Salem. Isn't that beautiful? Just uh, stunning, I think. But he restored um, uh, that abbey in France. And um, it's here that we saw, he really acknowledged the fact that our liturgical books that we saw develop in the medieval period. They, needed, they were in need of reform. And we see here 
a beginning of a patristic and biblical revival. That's what Pius XII referred to in Mediator Dei. And there's what um, is referred to as a return to the sources, all right, which becomes a theme of the Second Vatican Council. But we see it here in the 17th to 19th century that these Benedictine monks are striving for this. Let's go back to the Pauline source and let's see what it all meant in the early church and let's try to, re to have this revival. So studying patristics, which is the early history and uh, biblical uh, studying scripture is helping to get at a real meaning. And that's what this movement was about. And to me, it's just such a special, wonderful time. And basically, um, uh, Garanger really um, worked to reintroduce the Roman liturgy into France. And again, there's a lot, probably a lot more details uh, involved in this. And if it was a course on the history of the liturgy for 14 <coughs> weeks, it could go into that. But again, broad strokes. What I love here is he put great emphasis on the liturgical year, um, which has in some ways, I think in our time, been eclipsed. And we need to work hard to instill that in the hearts and the minds of people. That was my experience in the pastoral world, that far too many people have never heard of a liturgical year. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we talk about that. And this is what he is uh, very well known for, return to using Gregorian chant. Aldemar, our music student, right? You probably knew that already, <laughs> right? Um, it, that was one of his most significant contributions. Um, he wanted Gregorian chant to be used as the official music of the Roman church. Um, he encouraged chant instead of popular liturgical music that was being used in French churches at this time. And interestingly enough, in this abbey, um, it's still a center of publications and study and development for liturgical chant. And um, Aldemar, when you take a course from Dr. Donaldson, she'll tell you all about it. <laughs> she actually has a course um, on the just this period as well. Um, so it's real, and it's open to MA students to take, not just music students, but um, usually in the summertime. All right. So anyway. Um, also, um, it's the last bullet point on the slide. Um, the work of Garanger influenced the reforms of Pius X. He was uh, often referred to as Pope of the Eucharist, and also he was a great catechetical pope. But he, um, he. Um, this 1903 is his motu proprio, actually, which I'm not even going to attempt the, la uh, the Latin because I studied classical Latin and my ecclesiastical Latin is terrible. But anyway, it's an instruction on sacred music that we have from Pius X. So he 
really was very influenced uh, by the work of Garanger. And interestingly enough, um, my husband went to the Pius X School of Liturgical Music that is no longer, but it used to be at Manhattanville College, not too far from here. But it closed because people aren't, sadly, studying sacred music as their profession. Dr. Eschenauer. Yes. Did he know Dr. Marie or Mother Stevens? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I've heard those names. Yes, you're familiar with it. Yes, absolutely. I am. I, I have a. I have a CD of Dr. Marie and Mother Stevens having a conversation at their school uh, discussing it. So, yes. Yeah, yes. that's wonderful. Yeah, I think he finished in 1970. Yeah. Yes, he would have. He would have done that probably. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've, I've heard those names. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, that's one of the reasons why here at St. Joseph's we are really working hard with the talent of Dr. Jennifer Donaldson, our director of sacred music, uh, of building our music program. And we have students like Aldemar, and in the summer we have a ton more from all over the country. Uh, but liturgy is a course that they're required to take, so that's why you're here, right? <laughs> um, and they get a certificate from the archdiocese, actually, but it's our courses. But someday, maybe, maybe, say a prayer, we might see a school of sacred music here because there, there's like nowhere to go. Westminster Choir College used to be another one. My husband did his master's there and they closed. So, you know, but it's so important to, to our church. But here, here you have the, the, the origin of it, the roots, these beautiful, beautiful, uh, beautiful. So um, then we have in Germany, um, we have, there's a picture that I stole off the internet and it says Shutterfly, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's Maria Lach, I think is how it's pronounced, which is um, this uh, abbey. Um, but German monasteries trace back to, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, who knows German well, their own, 1863, I don't know. And the other one, Maria Locke, is the more popular, and that's why I put the picture there. But in Germany, this is where we trace the roots back of the movement there. And these were considered great liturgical centers that motivated enthusiastic students. Among them was Virgil Michael. And you've heard me mention him before, and I'm going to tell you a little more about him later on. Um, and if, if you remember, he's the founder of the liturgical movement in the United States. And that's why we'll talk about him later. And here is also where we find um, Romano Guardini, who was a Catholic priest, an author, and an academic. Um, he's considered uh, one of the most important figures in the Catholic intellectual life of the 20th century. Now, he, just as a little aside, um, he wrote uh, the first book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And then uh, Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, wrote a book called, that you're going to all read um, of the same title. So it's, and I think a couple of years ago we celebrated the um, 100th anniversary of Guardini writing uh, his book. 
but it was very influential at the time, and it still is a beautiful little book. I, I own a copy that's well-read and well-marked. Um, so, so there he is, a very important. And um, interestingly to note, publications and periodicals were organized at this time through his work on the church as the mystical body of Christ. Now, you're going to hear me say that a lot because these would call early pioneers of the liturgical movement. They were very much focused on that, to retrieve that richness of the church as the mystical body of Christ. We are pretty familiar with that theology, but people at the time were not at all, okay? <clears throat> and this, <coughs> excuse me, let me just get a second. This is really a founding principle of the whole movement, okay? And um, I don't think it's, yet. Yeah, it's on the next slide. Um, or not, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's not. Um, one of the, oh, I think it was Pius XII actually wrote an encyclical on the mystical body of Christ as well, all right? I'm sure that I know what's on my mind, so it'll come up at some point. All right? Again, very broad strokes, but is it making any kind of sense? You're getting, I, I, I want you to just focus on the big things that happen, the <coughs> shifts, the shifts here. And the value and the importance of this, you'll appreciate when you look at the Second Vatican Council documents on the liturgy, all right? Okay, so mystical body of Christ, founding principle of uh, the liturgical movement. Then we go to Belgium, okay? This officially began in 1909. However, it can be traced back to uh, their stirrings of it as far back as 1872, all right? And um, here we have this German abbot, uh, um, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. I should ask my husband, Walter. I don't know. My German is terrible, as you know. <laughs> but anyway, he founded a Benedictine monastery in Belgium. All right? So you see that all over Europe, they're kind of helping each other, you know, going from place to place. And here again, we find Virgil Michael now in Belgium. He's an American Benedictine student, and he now... Um, uh, moves on from Germany to Belgium because these um, schools are are developing. And the interesting thing about Virgil Michael, he was originally sent from Minnesota, from St. John's Abbey in Minnesota, to study philosophy. And uh, he did study philosophy because that's what he taught. But as we will see um, a little later on, that he became so involved um, and engrossed with the writing of particularly Romano Guardini. Uh, story goes that I read in his biography, sat up all night and read that book, uh, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Um, okay, all right. So here he is, um, Virgil Michael. That's what he looked like. Uh, that's his grave. 
uh, which I have seen. I've been there um, in Collegeville, Minnesota at St. John's Abbey. And I was there in 2011. And um, it was one of the most memorable weeks of my life. I'll never forget it. And um, my feeling was just when I walked around those grounds, I'm breathing the same air as these men. Virgil Michael happens to be my favorite, but there's many other liturgical pioneers in that same uh, cemetery on the, on the grounds. But the beautiful thing is, is that um, St. John's Abbey, uh, St. John's, um, there's a college there, St. John's University, and they do have um, a program in liturgy and the Benedictine monks that are there, most famous among them, musician, I'm sure you, Anthony Ruff. Um, and um, forget car really carrying on this beautiful, beautiful tradition, uh, which is so uh, wonderful. All right, so it's nearly eight. Let me just stop there for a minute. Um, I want to see if you have any questions about anything or anything that I said uh, in these broad strokes that we're talking about. Um, and if not, I want to just, uh, before we go on break, talk about the midterm. But we've got both. I, I did have a question. Yes, please. If you could just uh, clarify um, for me. Mm -hmm. um, on page 84, they use the word inixia, and then on 89, it's comixia. In Metzger? Yes. 84? 84, yeah. And I just want to make sure I'm understanding the difference of this. Um, okay, I'm on 84. Yeah. Uh, right above the, um, the bold, um, the last paragraph, it's the last word. Oh, okay. That. Okay, I see what. Okay, when the Pope was unable to be present, communion with him was shown by a the priest replacing the Pope placed a cup or a fragment of bread that had been made Eucharist by the Pope during one of the great solemnities. He kept to the purpose. This was, and as I said, my Latin is not so great. A mixed seal. All right. So that is the term that is used for the Pope would have consecrated the host, and then they reserved it. Okay. And, and then what's the other, on what page? On the top of page 89. Okay. Oh, okay. So, and then before the, communion, the third, the not only places fragment of the consecrated bread in the conviction, cup. This conviction? Is, yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's consecrated bread. So uh, that's the becomes, consecrated host that right. he places in the wine to this day. Right, okay. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a related, two different words, but right. it's two different actions, actually. Right? The first one is the Pope. Uh, the host is consecrated by the Pope, right? And right, then yes. kept in reserve. Yeah. And here they're referring to taking a piece of the consecrated bread and putting it in the wine. Right. And they talk about adding hot water. Yeah. And then that's supposed to signify resurrection and the body and blood that's of Christ. Exactly yep. Good. That's this is deep reading. When you're you know, you read with a either your phone to Google it or with a dictionary or whatever your choice is. And I do it all the time. 
um, you know, looking up words. And most of the time, even if they're uh, foreign words, if you Google them, you can find it. All right, so that's deep reading. That's very good. Okay? It's a detail. And I'm trying to not, um, it's good to know details. I, details are important. But for here, for the purposes of this, five weeks in, I'm trying, I don't want you to get lost in the details. I want you to. Yes, uh, Carlos. Yes, Brother Carlos. I have a question about um, the liturgy. I know this is a, might be a hard question, but maybe you know you can help me out because I was like you know, reading about the uh, liturgy and prayer across you know uh, the heaven, like the heavenly liturgy. Uh, uh, like you know that there's like a passage in the I think the New Testament. I don't know if it's uh, Hebrews, um, but that they talk about the heavenly liturgy. Uh-huh. Um, there's like a, I think like a lamb that is being slain, and then there's like um, the high priest who's who's offering. Um, I think he's going offering continuous sacrifice. I think that's what it's said. So I was trying to like figure out like um, it, I was trying to figure out like about Jesus. Like is Jesus like um, how is he like in heaven? Like I don't know if he's like as a lamb or is he like as a human? Like because I see that lamb figure, so I don't know. If, I don't know how, like, the, how is there like a liturgy going on in heaven? Oh. Like, I don't know if that, that's what I'm going to know. Like, yes, like absolutely. Absolutely. And what, that, that, this is a very deep question. It's a very good yeah, observation. I mean, I mean, absolutely. I figured actually now, you know, this is a, you're the only one that can answer these questions for us, you know? Well, no, I'm certainly not the only one, but my, some of my colleagues could probably answer them a lot better. But. What you're referring to, when we go to Mass, and I was really contemplating this this afternoon when I went to Mass on my way here, it's a foretaste of heaven, what's going on. And we are preparing ourselves for the heavenly liturgy where we will be with the risen Christ for eternity. And that's what we need to be thinking about when we are participating in the celebration of the Eucharist, all right? You know, I I can remember once being on a silent retreat for a few days and uh, being very content sitting in a small adoration (coughs) chapel for 10 hours. And I can remember saying to myself, this is a foretaste of heaven. Because if I'm so content and peaceful here in this place, wow, imagine what it will be like to be with Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. See, that goes back to the the, uh, sacrifices of the ancient uh, Jewish world. They always, they sacrificed the Lamb. So in... Now we fast forward to Jesus. He is the he's referred to as the lamb who was sacrificed. The innocent lamb who was sacrificed. Right? And won our salvation. You know? So I mean that's a short answer to a loaded question, but yes, we can refer to the liturgy in heaven where we will be there with all the angels and saints. Think about it when we when we sing holy, holy, holy. You know, and at liturgy now, we should be thinking that, you know, the communion of saints, the angels and saints are there 
with us. This is where faith, there's an interesting book called Why Faith Needs Imagination. And imagination isn't fantasy. Imagination is when we can really contemplate to the depths of our being what something could be like. You know? So, and it's hard for some people to do this, you know, to get beyond what we can see, feel, taste, smell. That if you think, when you're at, try this, when you're at Mass tomorrow or the next Sunday or whenever, particularly during the Holy Holy, just imagine every angel and saint right there with us. That's what we believe, and that's what is happening, and that this is the foretaste of eternity. And who can say that's boring? Right? You know, you often hear mass is boring. Not if you can really contemplate and really use your imagination to, to go to a transcend, go to a higher place, you know, of what is really happening there. Even if we're not smack on top of the altar, even I keep think, going back to Rob's question of weeks ago, it doesn't matter how far away. The spirit is active everywhere, making that happen. Yeah, that, because does that like, help you a little bit? Yeah, because like uh, in the mass, like we believe that Jesus um, dies and resurrects in the, the altar. It's the yes, the Paschal mystery. Jesus' death mystery. and resurrection are happening for us today. The word is enact, not reenact. To be in careful. A, in an unbloody manner. Correct. Yes. Just yeah. like just like the Jews with them when they would celebrate Passover, it was a memorial. So spiritually, they go back in to when Moses brought the right. Red it sea. makes it present, present now. Remember when we talked about what a meal meant, what remembering meant for the Jewish people. It meant, if they're remembering the Passover, that it makes it present for them now, in our day. We're not going back. It's being made present for us. So the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is made present for you and for me now. That we is do, an amazing thing. We do that during the Mass with the anamnesis. Exactly. Right, Remembering the past to we, affect the future. Yeah, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. Right, that we are yeah, remembering. And I was wondering, like, is Jesus like, um, like in heaven, like, is he like continually like leading, just like, just like the Lamb? Is he like continually like, uh, like dying? Like, Jesus, in, Jesus is in his resurrected form in heaven. Glorified. Thank you. Oh, okay. Glorified. Yes. Yeah, because the Lamb, because the Lamb, I don't know, the Lamb seems like it's stabbed. But it's resurrected. It's still sad, but it's still resurrected. Like so, well, is that like how Jesus is like still bleeding but resurrected at the same time? Think, think about the uh, gospels of um, when Jesus appeared to the apostles and others after his resurrection. He still had his wounds. Yep. You have to remember that he was glorified. He looked different. They didn't recognize him. But remember, Thomas puts his hands in his wounds. But it, it's a glorified 
Jesus, the resurrected Christ, that is with us right here as we speak. We never want to forget that. You know, so you try to use your imagination to think about in a deeper, more transcendent way of what every everything that happens, particularly during the Mass and other sacraments as well, you know, but to really put yourself in another place. Um, we, you know, sometimes we have different experiences at Mass. Liturgy, number one, should be timeless. We should never worry about how long it is, you know, any of that. And I'll share with you an experience I had today. I was, for some reason, in a real contemplative mood. And I got to Mass early, uh, which is a luxury. I don't always get that. I'm usually running from here, here. But on Wednesdays, I stop in a church. That's halfway, uh, my halfway point. They have a noon Mass. I got there early, like a half an hour. So that's just to be sitting in nice quiet. Then during Mass, I was not distracted by anything. And it was, I really thought to myself afterwards, I wasn't distracted by what time is it, how long is it gonna be, I gotta get on the road, you know what I mean? And then afterwards, this church on Wednesdays has exposition. So I stayed for a little while, wished I, and I remember thinking to myself, well, I wish I could stay here all day, but I gotta go to work. <laughs> But my point of telling you this story, and it doesn't always happen, because sometimes I'm like, I gotta get to work. Today I didn't have that experience. I felt like I was there almost for hours. I wasn't, but it felt that way. And I, I just, by having that time before, I just must have been in a particular state of mind, if you will, but uh, it should always be timeless. And we should never be worrying about um, how long it is or be distracted by anything because it is the divine liturgy, you know, and what we are doing there has such meaning that we, and we talked about this before, and we'll talk about it uh, after the break uh, when we look at what Virgil Michael has to say. People need to under, be aware of this. You know, the whole idea of liturgical catechesis that we brought up earlier. Um, far too many people, and not a judgment by any means, are not aware. I can remember my daughter-in-law, who was so inquisitive about faith and asks a lot of questions. And I remember explaining to her, uh, talking to her about, you know, the Eucharist. And I used the, um, uh, the comparison that, um, yes, every Mass is another Easter, but it's also the incarnation, that Christ is with us. And I can remember her response was, well, when you put it that way. I said, what well, we celebrate every Christmas, we can have every day, every Sunday, that, you know, um, God, you know, comes to be with us. And I'll never forget her response. Well, when you put it that way, wow, that's real important. That's meaningful. You know, so we need to, on the pastoral side, we need to help it be meaningful for people so that their experience will be rich and profound as it was meant to be. 
That ties in a lot what these um, early reformers, these early um, liturgical reformers of this movement were trying to do. Because remember, the age of rubrics and the silence of the um, assembly. In the minds of these wonderful scholars and deeply religious men, there was a problem that needed to be fixed. And Virgil Michael worked himself to the bone and died in his 30s. You know, he had a breakdown. And I think of him all the time because I don't want to have a breakdown over this stuff. <laughs> but I get it. I understand. But he wanted people to, to embrace it, to know. And uh, he worked tirelessly on that. So that, see what your question, Carlos? All of that. Anything else? I'll give you another chance before we end because it looks, I, I have a good suspicion we're going to get done what I plan. But um, you, uh, we'll go on a break in a few minutes, but let me just talk about the midterm. I posted it yesterday, because I want to give you time to do it, because some of you were in two classes, some of you were in three or four <laughs> classes, and you have other midterms, so I wanted to give you time to do this. But I want you to understand the reason for this assignment. Um, it's it's going to show me that you read this book, first of all. It's not a book review, but I want you to have an understanding in broad strokes of the history of the liturgy. All right? So it's, it's what I call an annotation and a response to the book. And I'm giving you questions to guide you in this. What are three important ideas you gained from the text? That's all. You know, it, there's probably maybe 103 things, but just three, all right, that you gain. And what is most, the most interesting new idea, like something perhaps you never heard of before, and you read and said, wow, I didn't know that. And then um, how were your preconceptions affirmed or challenged? You know, did you have a preconception of the history of the liturgy? And what you thought before reading the book, was it affirmed or did it challenge you? What did, it, what did you learn from it? And then what questions remain for you after reading the text? Now, as a student pointed out, this is pretty subjective because my answers to the questions will be different than yours. So I expect to get different answers from everybody. This, this is more reflective than research. If you, and some of you have had me before, you know that. You know, but it's research orientated because your answers are coming from your reading. Okay? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. Now, I know somebody also asked how long. All right? Not long. It's 25 points, all right, that you're going to get for this. All right? And everybody does this assignment, even deacon candidates who work for non-credit. You all do this. Um, I, for the whole exam, I don't want any more than four pages. Now that could mean I went back and actually looked at the last time I gave this assignment. Sometimes, sometimes uh, the person that did very well with this um, answered one of the questions just in a short paragraph. But then another one of the questions was a page. 
So it depends, but no more than a total of four pages. So there's four questions, but it doesn't mean that every one of your responses has to be a page. And remember, it's double-spaced. All of your work is double-spaced, no single-spaced. You're still following the proper format, all right, um, as in your writing guides. All right, if you quote, footnote it, all right? Pay attention to all the rules. Um, does that make sense? I, I know you can all do it. And you're gonna- Two can do it. <laughs> what? Two can do it. You can. Um, and it, again, the, the, um, the reason that I, I give this assignment is I want, I want to see that you've read the book and that you have a sense of what happened, okay? Can I just ask, when you say annotate, do you want us to refer back to where we found the information yeah, in the text? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like just like pages? Just yeah, just exactly. Okay. Metzger right. says whatever. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. Thank you, Laura, for that clarification. So it's an annotation and a response. Yeah, good. All right, how about a break? Um, a little before 8.30? And then we'll finish this up. Okay, see you in a little bit. We left off with Virgil Michael. Okay, let's see. All right, so everybody's good? Okay. All right, so when things get rough, we pray to Virgil Michael to help us out. Because he, he, he knew what he was doing. Um, this is an interesting thing that I just put as a note, um, that uh, in 1891, Leo XIII issues Rerum Novarum, which um, was the church's response to social conditions during the Industrial Revolution. Now, I mention it because this was a call for social justice, all right? and. I put it here just as a little aside because um, the um, early pioneers of the liturgical movement, like Virgil Michael and others, they connect, and I've, you've heard me say this before, but out of context, they connected liturgy and catechesis and social justice, three prongs that they felt were wed because the liturgy should move us into being a people of justice, right? And the liturgy forms us. You've heard me say that before. So Virgil Michael, if you were to go back into the library, to the old periodicals, he was the founder of what is now called Worship Magazine, and if you go back to the early copies with its Latin title, anybody remember what it is? I can't remember. Oh, which one? Uh, worship. I, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'll get it for you for next time. Forget. But anyway, he, his writing was geared to that. Liturgy connected to catechesis, connected to social justice. And I, I think I've mentioned it before, but he was a friend of Dorothy Day. <coughs> and he worked with her. And you know, I don't have to tell you about the beautiful work that she uh, did for the uh, world and our 
Um, so, so that's important. So that's why I kind of put this in here that you're aware of that. That you know we're talking you know similar time frames. Okay. Now, what as you could see uh, that I've been emphasizing all along with these um, early pioneers, their <coughs> emphasis on the vision of the church as the mystical body of Christ, which goes back to particularly uh, the. Pauline um, uh, writings, right? Uh, and here's what I was uh, mentioning before. We have uh, Pius XII in 1943 writes an encyclical called um, The Mystical Body of Christ. So you see how important it was to these early pioneers of the liturgical movement, and then as we move later on in the early uh, 20th century, it becomes important. And as we saw from the other encyclical, how Pius XII recognized the work of these Benedictines who were doing it. So you see, you can see how he, the spirit, worked in his life to that he, he brought with him this wonderful work that they were doing at this earlier time, and he brings it into his papacy in his writings. Does that make sense? So you see, again, it's not like flipping a switch. These, these shifts happen gradually. Uh, and that's how it works in the church. And it has worked from the beginning of time. And that's something that sometimes we can grow impatient with. <laughs> I, I will be the first to admit. But, but we have to trust in God's time. What is, what is God showing us in and through uh, people of particular time? And that we will... <coughs> We will get to the vision. I mean, that's the hope, that's the dream, that's my mission. In all of the uh, areas that I teach in, I relate to Virgil Michael. I teach the rights of Christian initiation of adults. I'm going to tell you right now, it's implemented so poorly across the country. So poorly. And it frustrates me that no matter what, all right? You look at liturgies, and we'll talk about this on a pastoral level, liturgies with children can be a disaster, all right? Because nobody's reading documents, and they're out there. Um, I, I look at catechesis, the state of catechesis. For the most part, it's been proven over 35 years ago that what we do currently in our parishes does not work, but we perpetuate it. So, so I, I feel Virgil Michael's pain, <laughs> because I've been close to 40 years working in these fields, uh, trying to implement, and I was lucky when I was in pastoral world that I worked with uh, priests and bishops who trusted that the rationale for doing things comes from what does the church say, you know, and that always has to be the rationale. But then there are others who don't want to hear that, and let's see that. Then we have a problem, and um, it happens with liturgy. Well, we don't do it that way, or you know. Um, just as an, not a, an observation, uh, recently a recent graduate of our program, a woman who, uh, I don't think I told you the story, she moved down to Florida, has a job in a parish, so excited, knows her stuff. She took every pastoral course we offer, she took it. And uh, she started to talk to her pastor regarding initiation rites, and he cut her right off and said, well, we don't do it that way. That's the wrong answer. Yeah, With right. all due respect, it's the wrong answer. 
because what she was trying to say, well, the right calls for X, Y, and Z. And he said, he just said, we don't do it that way. That's not the right answer. And when I teach the seminarians, I tell them that. I'm counting on you that when you're out in the parish. Do it right. <laughs> you know? Anyway, right, right. I digress. But anyway, I relate wholeheartedly to Virgil Michael and all of this. That's why I just love this, um, this whole uh, movement because understanding this, and that, interestingly enough, the title of the book, The Unread Vision, Keith Peckler's wonderful liturgist, he's telling us that this is the vision of the church. And nobody knows it because they're not reading it. You need to. So if, you, if you're looking for an extra book to read, this, I highly recommend this. It's a good read. It's an easy read. It's an interesting read. Uh, he's, uh, it's beautiful. What's and the name of it? The Unread Vision. Uh, the Liturgical Movement in the United States of America from 1926 to 1955. I think it's on your bibliography. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, so uh, we're going to wrap up this. Uh, let me just find my place in my notes. So the point here is that the vision of the church as the mystical body of Christ, I know I've said it a hundred times tonight, was really captured the hearts of these men that were looking for toward reform. Okay? And then again, we have this beautiful document in 1943. Um, so before we get to the United States, I just want to talk a little bit more, go back to Europe before, uh, and, and I want to talk about how Virgil Michael who went to study in Europe and all these different countries and how eventually he came back to the United States and what he did, all right? So here we are, uh, the, the movement now is uh, moving through Austria and Italy, and here we have Virgil Michael is, is sent to Rome to study, okay? And he studies with um, uh, Lambert Bodine, I'm not sure how to properly say his name, I apologize for that. Someday I'll study French and Latin. <laughs> but here, there's his picture. But he was a brilliant, brilliant uh, mover in this. Um, he taught at uh, Saint Anselmo, which is currently uh, the, the uh, liturgical center in Rome. Um, and our Catholic University of America, from what I understand, their uh, programs and liturgy are modeled after that. So basically, how Father Ernest and Father Zintarski and myself, how we uh, model our syllabus is really modeled after that, the best in Rome. Uh, uh, looking, starting with the history. Because all um, liturgy courses just start with, some of them just start with Vatican II, without knowing, setting a context. Well, where did it come from? So we're following that model here. But anyway, um, he was a, a Benedictine monk as well. And he taught apologetics. Uh, he taught ecclesiology. And he taught liturgy. Okay, And Virgil Michael was particularly attracted to his teaching. Remember I said before, originally Virgil Michael was studying philosophy. All right, But he was so... Uh, engrossed in these courses that he was also taking. And he was particularly, and I feel like I'm repeating myself too much, but Virgil Michael was particularly attracted to uh, Baudin's 
teaching on the mystical body of Christ. That really hit home for uh, Virgil Michael. Um, and this was unheard of in the United States, okay, at the time. And then eventually Virgil Michael went to Louvain and his interest in liturgy continued. Um, and I have a quote here. Um, let's see. Um, Virgil Michael recognizes a community transformed by its worship could ultimately be instrumental in the transformation of society. You see the connection that he was making? That's what I meant, liturgy, social justice, all right? That is a profound statement. For us, this is a message for us, that every time we attend liturgy, we should come out changed. Rob. How do you reconcile this with empty churches? Poor, cat poor catechesis. Poor catechesis. Not knowing, well, why do we go to church? People have to know why we go to Mass. Yeah, but th I mean, this, this seems exactly the opposite of what we see in the reality for today. And it was the opposite of what Virgil Michael saw in the reality. And that's why he pushed and he pushed and he pushed. Because you think about it. Let me continue with the quote and then I'll finish my thought. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't no, no, no. It's an excellent point, and we have to connect it to our experience or else this will make no sense. He goes on to say, thus, as early as 1925, Michael saw the liturgical movement as a means of countering the secularism and individualism of the modern age. <clears throat> the 1920s was a time very much like we're experiencing right now, as far as my research shows me that exactly the world that Virgil Michael was trying to bring this information to was a world that was very much like what we experience, a secular age, people just caring about themselves and nobody else. That's exactly, exactly. And Virgil Michael's um, thesis was that if people were at mass and understood what was going on, it would change the world. I used to, when I used to teach kids, I used that line. You know, they're preparing for their confirmation. I used to look at them and say, you have the power to change the world. And that's my final thought for you. <laughs> you have the power within you to change the world. And we all do. And the liturgy can do that for us. But again, the connection to catechesis. Catechesis toward the liturgy, from the liturgy, and reflecting on the liturgy. So important. How, in your experience, uh, if the, those of you who have pastoral experience, you have children, uh, young people that celebrate the sacrament of confirmation, do we bring them back and say, what did you experience? Not at all. Nothing. Right? That's a missing piece. And then they wonder why they disappear. Right. Right. Jackie's going to fix that in her writing of her thesis. That's her thesis. Um, but um, as I told, I think I must mention it every week, but it's so true. You see, we, we settle, we don't settle for the best. Virgil Michael didn't want to settle for the best. And I, I though my sentiments exactly. But if, so, so, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but every one of us, 
you know, we're, we're at mass, we're there, okay? We need to deepen, deepen, deepen what we are experiencing there and bring it out to the world. If we bring it to one other person, you know, like I always say, okay, my daughter-in-law, she's talking to me about this. This is so great, you know? Going back to the, you know, the whole poor catechesis thing, it's like, you know, teaching CCD, I had fourth graders, we were great. Which it should not be called CCD. CCD, 1975. It doesn't exist. But anyway. So anyway. I know, I know. Religious ed, sorry. So anyway. It shouldn't even be called that, but I don't. That's a different course. Again. But anyway. Go ahead. The thing is, is that you, you know, you have, I had fourth graders, I had fourth graders twice. And, um, you know, these kids, very bright, very engaged. Problem is, we're teaching the wrong people. We shouldn't be teaching the fourth graders. Teach we should the teach the parents. The parents are the ones that, so these kids, you know, I made, a, I made a comment one time to them. I said, so, I said, you know, how many of you guys, how many of you guys have, um, have received communion in the past year? And I had, I think, 11 or 12 kids in the class. So about half of them raised their mm-hmm. hand. I said, okay. I said, how many of you kids that receive communion have been to confession? Mm-hmm. Nobody raises their hand. Mm-hmm. So I went on, you know, about you know what you're supposed to do and this, that, and the other thing. And one of the kids, kid was, kid was very bright, raised his hand, and said, well, I would love to go to confession, but you know, I can't get there. I said, I said, okay. I said, why can't you get there? Well, my parents would take me. I said, well, what about mass? Well, and then everybody started to chime in, and they all ratted their parents out. I know. <laughs> Every single one of them ratted their parents out. That, that is a major, uh, I think uh, all of you um, online, you heard the, the comment about uh, parents and catechists. This is a major concern, and a recent survey was done with three dioceses, <clears throat> and this is a main concern of pastors. And, um, in my pastoral life, I felt the same way, and I was bold enough to present a program that I was allowed to do that was called Faith First at Home, where just one grade, first graders, did not come to class. The parents came, mm-hmm. cool. and I taught the parents. I didn't make them come every week, because I know how busy parents are, but we strategically planned it that they would come four times throughout the school year for effective, great catechesis on a particular issue, all right? And what we did was, one of the classes was, why do we go to Mass? It was amazing. And I, I, we talked about, first and foremost, this is the most important thing we do in a parish. The liturgy is the most important thing, you know? And it's the most important thing, and it's considered the center of our catechetical program for everybody, all right? So that was, then we went through, and it was a substantial 90-minute session, but that's why we only made it four times. Now, because you didn't want people hating it. That was my thing. I don't want them to hate it, I want them, to really want to come. And it was near 100% attendance. 
And I'm talking like, you know, 200 people. It's a huge parish. So this session on the mass was really, people were like amazed that this awareness, we saw mass attendance go up. We really did. Wow. We really, really did. So I am a firm believer that the parents need to be the target of catechal programs. Now, that's not my opinion. I didn't dream that up. I read it in a document that says the center of all catechesis is adult faith formation. The documents, the church, that's the church's vision. Who did Jesus teach? Adults. And I used to say to parents, you know, we're, we're working at this together, you know, and if this is important to you, and you make it important in your when you go home, I don't have to worry about your children. And that's the way it should work. I'm not saying that we don't we should do things with children. And um, I would say this doesn't disregard what we do for children, it enhances it. And it does, and I proved it for 10 years because I did it. And then after the first grade, it was mandatory in the first grade, they had a choice. You want to continue this throughout a, whatever grade we went up to, eighth grade, you can. And 60 out of 150 parents opted to do it that way. Cool. It was very cool. Yeah. It was very good. It was very good. And it gave them good adult faith formation, and then it, um, it brought it into the home. Because the home, according to the documents, is the most important place to learn about your faith. All right, I know there's another question, but I want to say one more thing in response to Anthony. The whole issue of mass. I taught fourth graders once, and they're very honest. Yeah. And I'd be up there talking to them about uh, mass on Sunday, and they'd look right at me and say, well, we don't go to mass. Right. So one time, this is what I tried. I said to this little boy, um, I could picture him, and this was 25 years ago probably. I said, do you want to go to Mass? I said, yeah. I said, ask your mother to take you. Ask her. So I told him a story. I said, I have a little boy who loves the Yankees. My husband and I could care less about the Yankees or the Mets or any baseball. <coughs> we could care less. But I have this, no my third child is an <laughs> athlete, and he loves. So he, he asks us, could we go to Yankee Stadium? And of course, I'm saying, no, we're not going to Yankee Stadium, <laughs> all right? So I'm telling this little boy this story. I said, my little boy asked me, but he kept asking, and he kept asking, Mommy, I want to go to Yankee Stadium. So I said to my husband, you know, I said to my husband on the slot, we got to go to Yankee Stadium. Mm -hmm. We got to go. We got to get tickets. We got to go. And I remember to this day, and my son is married now with two little girls, but he was in fifth grade. I remember I was driving, and I can remember, and this was the old Yankee Stadium, I'm driving to get off, and he's, you know, the hat, the shirt, the mitt, you know, the whole thing, and he looks out, and he says, there it is. I started to cry. So, okay, going back to my little fourth grader, I'm telling him this story. I said, so you need to ask your mother, and you need to ask her again. Guess what? Guess who I saw in church every Sunday? There you go. That yeah. whole family. That's good. Isn't that good? That's good. Persistence. 
Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Who's going to say no to a child that is asking to, to, to go. go to mass or to confession? So that's my response. Yeah. Ask and keep asking and keep rock. I had a teenager whose who's godmother brought him in because she wanted to get ready for uh, confirmation. His name is Matthew. The first class day we started, I made reference to the Gospel of Matthew. He got so excited, he didn't know it was the Gospel with the same name as him. Wow, that is so great. Yeah, but no, it's not. Well, no, I mean, his he, reaction he, to it is he's great. Six, he's 16, 17 yeah, years old. I see what you're saying. And he could not even cite the Gospel that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, and who's that? Is that his fault or is that his parents' fault? That's his parents' fault. Well, it, it goes back to that. But yeah, and well, right now, with the you know churches reopening, I don't see half the families that come back. They got used to not going to mass because of the pandemic. They've got other more important things to do now. We go to mass. I know. This is a reality that we're all going to face. I think everywhere. You know, it's uh, a it's and it's kind of hard if they're not there to be talking about it but um i mean i know people who are still afraid to go into public places i need to respect that even family members give it some pressures i see in restaurants yeah see that's the problem we're suffering see that's the problem but people in my family i'm talking about don't go anywhere not to a restaurant not to a supermarket nothing you know but people who are not going to church but going to these other places, well, then that's not an excuse that there is something missing there that we have to try to heal. I don't know. Do you want to say something? Just God, please. Be devil's advocate here. Do it. About, say it. Uh, children and parents and adults. Yes. We also have a big issue that for the past 40, 50 years, the church itself dropped the ball on catechesis. Absolutely. It's incredibly I agree. It down. I mean, yep. priests have said, you don't have to go to Mass. You don't have to make a sacrament. So as you please do this, do that. Well, that was kind of the seeds that they planted. And now we're getting rotten fruit from it. Now we're beginning to see what those seeds the, are. Because I it's think hard. what I hear you saying, the parents of the children now with these uncategorized. We're talking about generations of parents. We've yeah. lost two now. Yeah. We used you know, to say, so well, we lost a generation, but now them. we lost another one. So it makes it more difficult. It makes it a lot more difficult. And that's why we have to look at the bright side. And maybe we won't have 100 people. Maybe we'll have 50 and do some good adult faith formation. And they'll be devout. You know? And go out and teach other people. And again, that I, I can remember and then don't. I can remember having one of these parent meetings, all right, parent sessions. They weren't meetings. They were adult faith formation sessions. And I got a call the next day from a parent who wasn't enrolled. And she said, I was serving pizza at Covert School, the local public school, and I heard somebody talking about, this was awesome, I thought, how can I become part of this? Now, the like secretarial staff, they hated me because it was January and I'm like, come on down and register, like now. You know, I said, no, this is like the catechumen that we take people when they call, when they're ready. I don't care. I'm never saying wait till September to anybody. But that was a great moment that somebody's at the session, goes to school to serve pizza, 
to the kids and is talking about it to some, she brought somebody there. That's a wonderful thing. So just one person going and talking about it, you never know how the spirit works. Somebody is there because. I went to a retreat once, very skeptical, because somebody said to me, you should come. All right, this is a few years ago. It changed my life, and I'll never forget it. But I was so skeptical, like, oh, what is this going to be like? It was great. Doug. It's so funny you said that, this. because what I was just going to say before you said that was, wouldn't it be great if we could take these confirmation kids on a retreat before they get confirmed, and then another one after? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think that would be much more valuable than putting them in a classroom for a couple hours a week. Absolutely. Absolutely give an experience. Spiritual formation is not sitting in a classroom. It's taking, going on a retreat, a prayer experience, what, di introducing different devotions. And we should absolutely be doing it. It, it was proven, and I, I, you know, did the research years ago, a classroom doesn't work. I used to introduce and do talks in the Diocese of Rockville Center on um, religious education beyond the classroom. You know, I was a proponent of it and tried to teach the parents that I was able to, that there's another way to do this. You don't have to sit down at three o'clock with your child and open a book. I said, and I used it as an example, in the first grade book, the first chapter is on creation of the world. Teach your children about creation. Go for a walk on the beach or to a beautiful park and point out that God did all this. Well, I have to tell you, I have to insert a personal story. My six-year-old granddaughter, during the pandemic, I was teaching her. And we talked about it, God creating the world. And she was in awe of the whole thing. You know, it was, and I embellished a lot. It was, everything was dark. And God said, let there be light. And he created the sun. A few weeks later, she's out riding her bicycle with her mom, my daughter-in-law, who asked me all the faith questions. And they stopped to rest, and she looked at her mother, this was so great, and said, you know what, Mom? She said, once it was all dark, and God said, let there be light. And that's why we have this. That's how you teach your children about God. You make it real. You make it real. Well, that's how Jesus taught, though. Of course he did. He made it real. You know, we try to teach children about the Eucharist, where we gather. But then we have to look at the family. Families aren't gathering for meals mm. during the week. You know, it's you know a maybe a happy meal in the back seat or you know whatever. Again, observations. I worked in the real pastoral world for many years. But you're absolutely right. Give them prayer experiences before the celebration of the sacrament to prepare. But bring them back afterwards and say, tell me what you experienced. That's mystagogy, and that's a, a Roman Catholic way of being in the world, constantly reflecting on our experience of, of any, whether it's confession, whether it's a funeral, a wedding, whatever it is, an ordination, Sunday Mass, Easter, Christmas, I don't care what it is. Write down your experience. I mean, as adults, we could use journaling as a way of prayer and reflect on I told you about my experience 
of, of mass today, and I thought about it all the way. I didn't put the radio on, nothing. Nothing. No music. I wanted quiet and say, I had a different experience today. The Holy Spirit was working in, in a way that made me really realize that liturgy is timeless and really can penetrate our hearts. That's what you want. You give people a good experience like that, you know, they'll, they'll be hungry for it. And even if it's one, if it's one, if you could do that for one. My husband and I were on the baptism team for our parish for years. And um, we always uh, met in the home. And the, re the pastor had said, you know, the faith starts in the home, the domestic church. So we meet in the home. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we always did is we would have things out on the table, you know, um, big chunky rosaries and different things. And we talked to the parents about having sacramentals in the home that are age appropriate for the kids. Mm -hmm. And that as you teach your child to walk and talk, and you're not starting with, you know, the SAT, you know, <laughs> same thing, that you start with having these things that they can touch and play with, and as they learn the ABCs, they can be learning the Hail Mary. Of course. And, you know, um, and we always said, bring the kids to church. And they would, every mom would say, oh, she cried. That's what babies do. Right. It's okay. Sit in the front. Sit in the so front. So they can see. So they can see. There's something going on. And every time we had a new priest in the parish, we always told them to say, yeah. We tell them to come and sit in the front, so right. use the microphone. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's excellent, and I, I would be a proponent of that. You know, sacramentals in the home. You know, that somebody should come into your home and know you're Catholic, mm -hmm. that we can't be afraid. And I used to, you know, I, I always wanted to, you have to have a good rapport with people, you know, that you're, um, they have to trust you. So I would say, I know it may not go with your decor, but you really need to have this stuff in your home because it's gonna help teach your children, you know, whether it's a crucifix, statue of Mary, whatever it is, you, you need to have it there. You need all, to of my, all of my grandchildren had a conversation with the three foot high blessed mother that I had in my doorway coming in the door. All of them. I don't know why she was. Well, I do know why she was speaking to them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. But they all just talked with her and hugged her and would just talk awesome. with her and say, "Why do you look so happy?" Or they were babies. They yeah. had two. But see, right from now, the beginning, she's at my doorway. Yeah, mm -hmm. she's at my doorway, and they expect her there. I love that. That is so great. You know, um, you know, mangers at Christmas time so important. That um, and people need to be made aware. I don't. I almost said be taught this, but we, if we could just make somebody aware of it, you know, one other person aware, <coughs> then we, we've done a great thing. Um, but to get back to the challenge of now, after well, pandemic time and people back and everything, we need to pray for that. We really need to pray for it. And I would say that 
at different times in history that we, we didn't talk about. But for example, uh, um, Pius XII, he was re responsible for the reforms of Holy Week. I vaguely mentioned this, and I'll talk more about it when we do the liturgical year. But his feeling was that the people needed hope. And Holy Week, the celebration of, prior to 1955, was a disaster. And he said, we, and I mean, people weren't there. The Easter Vigil was on Saturday morning, only with clergy. I mean, the whole thing made no sense. But anyway, his feeling was, we just came out of two world wars. People are hopeless. They need hope. We need to do something. So he reformed Holy Week. It was a start. All right, It was completed with the Second Vatican Council, but he started it in 1955. And by 1969, it was set in motion. But I think we're in a similar situation now, that there are people. You know, I went to the doctor the other day for a routine thing, and the first question the nurse taking my blood pressure said, do you feel um, hopeless, depressed, or something mm -hmm. else? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess because of the pandemic, they wanted to know, like do a screening for people. And I said, no. Um, um, it's a huge problem right I know now it is. Because um, I do work with AFSP. Yeah. And it is huge. Yeah. So I think that, and this is off the top of my head, you know, we're talking about this. It's vitally important to our church. We need to be praying for people to have hope and to want to be hungry, starving, to walk into that church building because that's the place that's going to give them hope. And we know that. We all know that. And we have to create this awareness that this is where you will find the Lord. And that is the only answer for our hope in this world. St. Augustine. That's right. That's it. Because, you know, everybody tries to fill it with everything else, you know? And it doesn't work. So it's, it's creating an awareness uh, for people, whoever we can, whether it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, you never know. Um, and if you're in a pastoral situation, the worst thing to do, and you who took my ministry course last year, you heard me say this, but the worst <coughs> thing to do is to judge, <laughs> you know, um, what um, my daughter-in-law sometimes says about our pastor. I, she said, I feel like Father Daniel's always yelling at us. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't mean to. But it's just kind of on, it's not, wouldn't be my approach, let me put it that way, that I've never want anybody to think pastorally that I'm yelling at them. That, so we have to be careful of how we approach. We have to understand. Um, quick story, then we're gonna finish here. But you see how we're integrating liturgical studies with pastoral? This is really important. And how catechesis is directly linked to the liturgy. I once interviewed a catechist in a parish. If somebody volunteered to be a catechist, they had an interview with me, a chat over a cup of coffee. And I would always ask the question, well, why do you want to be a catechist? 
And this woman, who I knew in the parish, she had older children, and then she had one younger one coming into first grade. So she said to me, so honestly that I never forgot it, she said, we never used to go to church. And I came and I sat in the very back of the auditorium to all your parent meetings. I sat in the back, and you talked about mass and all that, and she said, we never went. But she said, you never judged me. She said, now we go to Mass every day. I never forgot that. And it was a real pastoral lesson that the worst thing to do is judge somebody. We have to accept everybody where they are and then try to create awareness that they will want to be there. They will want, and we have to find ways to do that, creative ways. Um, and the thing is to accompany people. You know, Pope Francis talks about accompaniment. We have to walk the road to Emmaus with people and open their eyes, basically, like Jesus did. That's what catechesis is about, walking with and opening their eyes. You know, that little boy's eyes were open that there was a, a Gospel of Matthew, even though he was older. Great, he knows it now. It's not too late. Yeah, that's what he afterwards confirms the last time I've seen him in church. I know. I know, that's, that's a whole nother problem. The point is, I think we, why, we have to look at, well, why do we keep coming back? What makes us? But is there a problem, really? I mean, faith is something, is a gift from God. Yes, it is. I mean, we cannot force anybody to have faith. And God is in control, so why should I worry? Keep doing <laughs> my job, keep, keep showing people my faith, and hopefully, it would be continuous. Right, you know? you'd be a witness. And that's why I said we have to pray for people in this time of pandemic. Pray for people that they will see. that Because you know what? I And I boldly said it. I do not think I'm going to get COVID by going to church. Because I have to tell you that my oldest son, who did lose his father-in-law during all this, said church is not essential. And I said, yeah. don't well, you tell me that. Well, how many people have died in church from COVID? Well, I mean, but the church is being. But anyway, that's my personal opinion. That I'm not. I wear a mask. Whatever. But you're absolutely right. Faith. That's an excellent point. Faith is a gift from God. It's a free gift. We don't earn it. And we can be witnesses to that faith, and people can see it in us, and that will make them say, "Well, hmm, I wonder, you know, why, you know, Lucas does that." And maybe I want to try it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. But what we need to pray. That's why I said that. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will work in the lives of people who feel afraid, hopeless, depressed during this time. And I, I may, you know, God does amazing things, and we can never, never deny that. I was going to say. So that's all true. But then we were sent, right? Weren't the disciples sent yep. on mission. Now that involves some activity, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. It, it's it, a twofold thing. It's Absolutely. twofold because yeah. praying for doesn't mean that I'm just sitting home praying and being passive. You know, we always have to remember that. And it's not easy to do that if I'm praying for somebody, let's say, in my prayer, I'm thinking of I'm trying to hear how God 
what action do I need to take to possibly help the person? You know, sometimes, at certain times, prayer may be enough. At other times, maybe some action has to be that if a person um, is doing something that may be inappropriate, that sometimes the action. But I think it requires the prayer first and then really discerning um, what do you want me to do. But, but you're absolutely right. No, I, Lucas is right too because there might be a circumstance where just being the witness is really all God's asking you to do. That's right. And then when you get that open door, well, then that's your opportunity. Like in Francis says, when possible, use words. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so all of this, every, this has been so fantastic, but we need to be able to integrate this. See, this is why I always say, and this is a quote from the Directory on the Permanent Diaconate, you guys heard me say it before, the intellectual nourishes the human, the spiritual, and the pastoral. Because when we're learning about these things, intellectually, we integrate it and it touches our heart, who we are at our very depth. And in our heart is where God is. You see what I'm saying here? And this is what the people like Virgil Michael and the others that I mentioned, this is what they were doing, trying to do. And have we even seen the, the riches of this yet? The unread vision. We're still working on it. We're still working on it. You know? Absolutely. But we are living in a world that is, in my mind, pretty much the same as the world that Virgil Michael lived in. A secular, individualistic, modern age. Now, some would call this postmodern. But it's still, it's, we live in a secular age. You know that book, uh, Taylor, whatever his name is, I forget. Taylor Probably also used narcissistic. Charles, Charles Taylor. Taylor Marshall? No, not no. Taylor Marshall. Charles Taylor, uh, secular age. A lot of uh, theologians and stuff were quoting uh, catechetical scholars and stuff, that we live in a secular age. And how do we bring God into a secular age? I mean, that, that's the mission. That's the mission. You can also add, add the moniker of malignant narcissism, which you can add to the 20s, which we have now, which is worse now than it's ever been. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, not only the political climate, but a lot of other things, so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a challenge, and it's a risk. It's uh, not easy for us in the pastoral world, but we do it one small step at a time, you know? We do one small step, and we, if we help one person, we've done a great job, you know? I think the other thing, going back to what Lucas said really quick, I'll just be really yeah, honest, is that, um, you know, in the process of, you know, uh, conversion, evangelization, um, in pastoral ministry, it, it, it's not like you flip a light switch on. You know, it's like this slow reeling in and anybody who's ever experienced that understands it. Exactly. And um, so he's right. I mean, you know, you show people, you're the, like, and Doug, you, you're the witness, right? They see you, they see how you are, they see what you do, they see how you think, they see, you know, all this. And eventually, things happen. That's what attracted the early Christians to want to be Christians. See how they love one another. 
And what did they went and they lived with the Christians and they wanted to be part of that. You know, that's what that's basically what our mission is. You know, come and see, come and see, like that friend Please of mine. Please see the goodness of the Lord. Yeah, you know, my that my friend that said, yeah, you need to come on this retreat. I'll try it. You never know. So we can do that, brothers. You invite. You invite somebody. You know? All right, so this is the last slide. See, I did get it done, and I have five minutes. I am so happy tonight. Um, theological foundation of the liturgical movement. I talked uh, probably ad nauseum about the mystical body of Christ. That was important. But hand in hand, here we have it, the call to active participation. That is the theological foundation. And we are going to see this when we uh, look at um, Sacrosanctum Concilium, Dogmatic Constitution on the Liturgy, um, that this is huge, a real shift in the ecclesiology, as we know from Lumen Gentium, but that how it's right in there with the liturgy. And as I mentioned before, this was intertwined with social justice and education or catechesis. This was very important um, uh, for these liturgical pioneers, as they are called in other, in Keith Pepper's um, uh, book. Um, there was very much interest here as well, um, and that's why I brought up Rerum Navarum, uh, the whole um, interest in the dignity of the human person. You know, uh, that was a deep um, regard socially, but that uh, filters into the whole idea of that the community of believers is important. See, remember we saw in the medieval the eclipse of the assembly? Well, now this call to active participation is saying, no, you're the body of Christ. You are important. So we're moving as the book that I'm reading is from silence to participation. You see, you see what I'm getting at here? So that's really important. So Peckler's notes in this final quote in his book, fundamentally then the founders of the movement were not attempting to introduce anything new but to encourage the church in the United States to return to its roots in the early church where the lives of Christians, both individually and corporately, were formed and shaped by the worship in which they participated. Okay, so it was nothing, this is nothing new. This is what happened in the early church, right? So the liturgical movement also understood the relation of liturgy to education, and Peckler notes, and I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't type this out, but this is from page 151 in Peckler's. He says, resistance to change often stems from ignorance or lack of information rather than anything else. Thus, the way to encourage full and active liturgical participation was to educate, to catechize the people liturgically about their role as baptized members of the church 
and their responsibility within the mystical body. Wow. If people knew that, create that awareness. You know, I can remember having uh, 50 people sitting in front of me, uh, Catholic school teachers, catechists, and I referred to the universal call to holiness. We're all called to holiness. No, that's for saints. No, that's for you. You know, we think, we've heard this before, but there are people out there that, that that's what I, why I put this in here, this lack of information. I can remember teaching a course here nine years ago on lay ecclesial ministry in the church and a new student who was so excited and enthusiastic heard that universal call to holiness and she said it changed my whole life. Never heard it before. See, so a lack of information than anything else I, is what he's saying is like part of this problem. Do people know the dignity of their baptism? We have to teach them that. We have to show them, you know? We're living it out. But then, in the pastoral world, figuring out ways, um, and a perfect way to do it is when they bring their children to be baptized. You have an opportunity to catechize the parents about, or children receiving, going to first confession. You know, we did um, around, um, for uh, our Catholic school and our catechetical program, we had three adult faith formation sessions on the sacrament of reconciliation in their life. Not when your child's gonna come, what you're gonna wear, what time do you come, this, that. No, this sacrament in your life. That was what, and they were shocked. They didn't know that that's what they were coming to, but that's what they came to. And the pastor that I worked with at the time said, if this is not important to you, why are you bringing your child? You gotta think about it. Think about what this means to you. Same with confirmation. I would say to parents, think about your own confirmation. What do you remember about it? Some said nothing, some said very little, a party, whatever. No, well let's think, let's go to the ritual. Let's think of what happened and think about what that means for you right now. Because we're living out the graces, all of us, of our confirmation. People need to know that. We're living out the graces of our baptism, I hope every day. That's what we wake up to be, the baptized. This is what these early pioneers were trying to establish. And next time when we meet, I'm so happy to say that we are going to dive into the Second Vatican Council and with all of this beautiful background, it <coughs> makes sense. Amen. Amen? Email me, questions, whatever you want to ask. Some way or another, we'll get it in. You're all good about the midterm. You have two weeks to do it. Okay. If you have any questions, just send me an email. I'm happy to get it, and I pride myself in getting pretty much right back. Okay. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.